Our first reading uh, is taken from Judges chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, and then verse 28. Page 250 in the Church Bibles. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give, you, give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered, as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmana were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobar and Jogbahar and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmana, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning again. And uh, we're now going to look at Judges. This is a series we're going through. And this is like a mini-series within the series. This is the third sermon on Gideon the judge rescuer who is uh, going to rescue God's people from the Midianites. Now, in uh, part two last week, Bart talked about several things that happened in chapter seven. It's all about the 300, that God only used 300 Israelites to defeat the Midianites. And Bart told us about the danger of strength, the Lord graciously weakening his forces to fight the Midianites, and how the Lord's power is made perfect in weakness. So those are very important lessons from chapter 7, and we're going to learn some more lessons in chapter 8 about the 300. Now, when I think of 300, I think of the movies. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Maybe not. (laughs) Anyone seen either of those movies? 1962, if that's your vintage, or 2006, if that's your vintage. The 300 Spartans. Several centuries after the events in Judges 7, another 300 soldiers uh, feature in a major incident in history. 300 Spartans and other Greek soldiers go out to meet a massive 
invading army from Persia. And they meet them at a place called Thermopylae, which is the fiery gates, the fiery sulfur springs. And it's a very narrow mountain range pass that they meet the Persians in. And they hold the Persian army up, just these 300 Spartan warriors and a few other Greek soldiers. And it's gone down in ancient history as a major event. But it was a major defeat. The 300 Spartans were killed, and the Persian army rolled on into Greece. But there's an interesting parallel I want to draw your attention to. 300, I should be looking down there. 300 Spartans met all the Persians. They had a glorious defeat, a romantically glorious defeat. But it meant the Greeks could then be inspired by that and bounce back and expel the Persian army from Greece. With um, the 300 Israelites defeating the Midianites, it was a glorious victory. But this glorious victory led to a downward spiral. The message of today's passage is success in the Lord's work can be dangerous. Success in the Lord's work can be dangerous. So I think we ought to uh, open in prayer and see what the passage has to tell us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Let's catch some Z's. One thing that I used to fear as a teacher, and it did happen, some of my students fell asleep in my lessons. It wasn't because I was boring them. It wasn't my soft voice. It was because they probably parted hard the night before, or they had a piece of coursework they had to get in that morning, and they'd spent the night going through it. Now, I'll be watching you carefully to make sure that I'm not seeing any of you catching any Zs. Okay. So, don't fall asleep, please. This is quite a powerful passage. You need to pay attention. There's momentum about this passage that we need to keep up with. Okay, well, this is not the disease that uh, Gideon is pursuing. It's Sebar and Zalmunna that he's pursuing, the two Midianite kings who've escaped. Now, as I was uh, listening to the sermon last week that Bart was delivering, I was amazed, I know the story of Gideon, but I was amazed again at the way in which Gideon had been transformed in chapter seven. He'd suddenly discovered his leadership skills. He was suddenly a great military tactician. These skills emerged in, um, in the battle. He suddenly started using incredible tactics. He only had 300 men, that really forced him to think creatively, how can I make my 300 seem more than 300? They had the trumpets and the torches and the, and the jars, and they made themselves into a larger force than they were. They also attacked at night, where they created maximum confusion. And one of the things I noticed that we didn't have time to look at last week is, like a good general, he blocked the escape route of the army, the Midianite army, when it was on the run. He needed to defeat and deliver the people of Israel from this threat permanently, not just temporarily. He needed to block the retreat of the army that he just, um, just defeated. So suddenly God has gifted Gideon with these skills. Suddenly the timorous, frightened man we've learned about in the previous chapters has become a bit of a warrior. He's become a warrior. 
He's become the Lord's mighty warrior, as was predicted in chapter 6. But he needs to remember, although he's a great tactician, it's God who is the commander-in-chief. He has provided the strategy for Gideon. He has given him the resources of the men and the gifts of leadership. He has reassured Gideon with some military intelligence. He has told Gideon where to fight the battle. The Lord is the commander. Gideon is merely the tactician who's been given incredible gifts. Now, not only military leadership, at the start of today's passage, we see political leadership. Gideon has gone with only 300 men. He hasn't included the whole of the nation of Israel. He's left out some big names. And they are slightly concerned about not being asked to the party. So the Ephraimites come down. Yes, they blocked the retreat, but they haven't been involved in the main battle. They're a big tribe. They deserve a bit of recognition. But they haven't learned the lesson of the 300. It is that uh, there's danger in strength. God didn't want a large tribe to be involved. He wanted only 300 people to show his power, not their power. So they don't get the message yet. They haven't learned the message of the, six, the 300. I've just multiplied them up there, sorry. That's probably because there are two 300s in my previous slide. They haven't learned the message of the 300 that there is danger in trying to do things in your own strength. Gideon's been fighting the Ephraim, the Midianites. Now he's got to deal with his own people, his Israelite tribes. He's got to try and keep them on side. And he does it beautifully. He's suddenly become a political leader. Not only military, but now he's a political leader. He turns away their wrath with the gentle answer that Proverbs encourages us to do. A gentle answer turns away wrath. He diffuses what could have been a very tricky situation. He's got to keep pursuing the retreating Midianites. He doesn't want to get entangled in internal politics and have to fight his own people. So success for Gideon with the Ephraimites. Not so successful with Sokoff and Peniel. I really do feel <clears throat> sorry for these people because, again, they haven't a chance to learn the lesson of the 300 that the Lord's power is made perfect in weakness. They've just seen 15,000 troops running past their front door. And who's following them? How many? 300. Ooh, I'm not sure who's going to win. And if I back the 300 and they they look a bit outnumbered, when the 15,000 come back, they're going to take it out on me. I, I can understand their reluctance to help. They want to preserve themselves. They want to avoid retribution. So they they say to Gideon, when you come back with proof you've defeated these Midianites and they're no longer a threat, then we'll give you food. Until then, we're sitting on the fence. We're taking it easy. So Gideon continues the pursuit of the Midianite army. And he catches up with them. He routes routes them, is that a word? They're routed, um, and the two final kings are captured. And he has rescued the people. He is a judge deliverer. He's rescued the people. Job done. We should turn to the end of this chapter, as it were, on another judge. And we should go for the familiar verses that you see 
to close off an episode of a judge. It says, um, <clears throat> then, there was, then the land had peace. In the case of Othniel, for 40 years, Ehud, 80 years, Deborah and Barak, 40 years. So we should close the passage. Lesson learnt, shortest sermon in a long time. Let's go and have coffee. Um, but the, the verse saying there's peace in the land doesn't occur in verse 13. It occurs in verse 28. Robin, you haven't finished. There's work for you to do. Sorry, I'll just clear out the way. Verse 13 to 35 of Judges 8. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth the lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at table? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their, off their camel's necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerobbaal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died 
than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. You can uh, relax now. Oh, can we relax? I'm not sure. Success in doing the Lord's work can be dangerous. Uh, you can tell I'm a bit of a film fan. There's a, sorry, I must apologise to a certain ex-vice president here. No, Al Gore. Film, An Inconvenient Truth About Environmental. There we go. Oh, we can have a film like quiz, aren't we? Maybe not. Okay, um, the Bible is an amazing book. It's an amazing body of literature. Uh, I continually, as you can tell, I quite like reading old books as well. I'm amazed every time they, they don't hide things. They don't smooth things over like other pieces of literature. The writer to Judges um, could have gone straight to the verse 28 ending and left it, but he felt the need to change the structure when it came to Gideon because there are things that we need to know. It's a case of no redaction here. We always hear about text being released but bits being painted over in black. Here you get to know things. The, um, the text tells you what happens afterwards and there's things we need to know. Now one of the things you'll get from this um, chapter is there's a great sense of momentum. The, the adrenaline is, is flowing. Gideon has fought an amazing battle. He's had to chase after the retreating army. He's, he's had to deal with his own tribesmen, countrymen. He's then tried to get provisions for his army to keep the chase going. He hasn't succeeded. He's managed to get to the army of 15,000 and, and defeat them and capture the kings. The adrenaline must have been pumping. Incredible momentum is going on here. And he then goes back to the, um, the two towns that refused him provisions. And we've seen that they probably did it out of a sense of self-preservation. He, however, sees it as a personal insult. He's now taking ownership of what's going on. God's being pushed to the side and Gideon's being pushed to the front. In his mind, this is an insult to him as a warrior. They would not do as he asked. He's got his, everything's gone brilliantly since he was at the, uh, the lake or the, the pool of um, Harold. Everything's gone brilliantly. He's feeling good. He's feeling on top. He's feeling in control. And then suddenly he gets this snub and he doesn't like it. And this can easily happen uh, when we get caught up in things. We suddenly start to take ownership of it. We see it's ours and we become very precious over it and we take things personally. And Gideon does something that a king would do. He dispenses justice. They've ignored him. They said, you've got no authority over us. We're not going to help you. And he's taken it personally and he's lashed out like a king might lash out. So self-preservation has been misinterpreted. And then we know that he goes on and he deals with the two kings. And this is very interesting because we learned some interesting information we hadn't got before. 
Like a good commander, he pursues the enemy to make sure it's a complete victory and the enemy won't come back to um, counterattack. But we now learn that part of this endless pursuit, this incredible pursuit, is down to personal vendetta. He wants to get to the kings because they have killed members of his family. And it's interesting that these two kings, before they're executed, they do actually start to say to Gideon, you have the bearing of a prince. So he's acted like a prince, a king in dispensing punishment. He's now starting to act like a king in the way he treats other kings. And something is happening here to Gideon. So the warning signs are there. Gideon, you need to be aware of what's going on. You haven't learned the lessons of the 300 about God not wanting power, but wanting to use weakness. You are becoming someone who feels quite powerful and things are gonna start to change. So, Gideon's shown military leadership, political leadership. How's he gonna do on spiritual leadership? Will this slide that we're seeing, the slippery slope he's on, will it stop? Will he start to acknowledge the Lord and his work or will he continue bigging up himself? And there's a crucial verse coming up. It's the offer he does refuse. In chapter seven, when they fought the battle, they said for the Lord and for Gideon. Now it seems like it's for Gideon that the people cry. They want Gideon, they want a king. And he says, no, phew, the rock seems to have stopped. He is still acknowledging the Lord as the, as the one who is responsible for all this success, not him. And so the Lord, is the one you should follow, not me. The Lord should rule. Gideon says no to monarchy, yes to theocracy. God rules okay. Now, one of the commentators, brilliant commentator called uh, Dale Ralph Davis says this. It is ever our danger that after being used by God in some way, we mouth humility, but practice pride. And he won't be the, he's not the first, he won't be the last to do, to say, I don't want to be king. Here's three to go on with. Who are they? First one was offered the kingship, have refused it, but acted like a king. That's Julius Caesar. Second one, Oliver Cromwell. He used to sign his uh, documents when he was Lord Protector, Oliver P, rather than Oliver R, so he didn't want to be called um, Oliver King, but he was Oliver Protector, Oliver Cromwell. And we have the last one, Joseph Stalin, who was sometimes called the Red Monarch or the Red Tsar. These people said later in history, no to King, but they acted like this. And Gideon says one thing, and we're about to see he does another almost immediately refusing the crown. He asks, he says, but can I have some of your gold, please? And I'm going to um, do something with it. He says something with his mouth, with his head, but we're about to see his heart action is different. And again, um, Tim Keller says, God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that in fact, we earned the blessing for ourselves and we should receive praise and glory. So Gideon asked for gold to make into an effort, and he 
not to confuse, I always can't get Oprah Winfrey out of my head. He, he makes his hometown a center, a religious center. Here's the ephod. You probably can't read that. Everyone can go to Specsavers after the, the service. Um, ephod is a thing that the priest wore in the, in the sanctuary, in the temple later, and it was used in part to seek guidance. Now, Gideon uses the gold to make this sort of, um, this coat, this ephod. And it was often used for guidance. And what do we know about Gideon from his past life? He was an uncertain individual. He wanted constant reassurance and guidance. Is this Gideon going back to where he was before the victory at the lake or pond of Harod? Is Gideon wanting certainty? Is he wanting reassurance? And this is why he, um, he gets this thing made and has it put in his hometown. And what does, it, what does it do? It becomes like a golden calf. The thing created becomes the thing worshipped. Rather than worshipping the creator God, they worship creation. So it becomes a golden calf. And Ophrah, the, the town, becomes a new religious centre. But it's not a centre that worships God. It worships idols. So Gideon has said one thing, and he's done another. And this traps him. It snares him. And we also learn that he has many wives. What do kings do to show their power and guarantee their succession? They have many wives. And only one is named, which is quite significant, because Abimelech actually translates into, my father is king. My father is king. So Gideon says no to kingship in public, public profession, but private practice says another thing. What he rejects in name, he lives out in reality. And that's Gideon. Ooh, that's quite heavy, isn't it? Should we pause for a second? Not easy, but the writer kept it in because they wanted us to know this. They didn't skip it. They gave us these uncomfortable truths about Gideon after the victory. So success in doing the Lord's work can be dangerous. So how can we leave this place in a positive frame of mind? I, I want to suggest four positive applications from this passage. This passage where we've met some inconvenient truths about Gideon, the judge, deliverer. So if you want to finish the sentences on your sheet at the back, you may do so. I've started it with a word. So <clears throat> let's, let's think about, the first one is pray. Pray. Pray for our Christian leaders, please. Pray for them. It is so hard to be in leadership, so much responsibility, so many challenges. Pray for our ministers, please. Pray for them, whether they're going through times of success in their leadership or failure. Pray that they would remember who has called them and who has equipped them. Gideon was forgetting who had called him and who had equipped him. And pray that they be grounded in the word of God. So please pray for our leaders, our Christian leaders. It is tough. And then the next one is give. We have responsibility as well as a congregation to give our leaders encouragement, 
appropriate forms of encouragement. The encouragement I gave Gideon in this passage is not the encouragement we should be giving our leaders. We need to help them and build them up, but not to turn their heads. Okay, so reflect on what you can do to encourage those in leadership, because they do need encouragement, they need support. It is tough, it is lonely, it is easy to sort of go, go off track. So we should pray for our leaders, we should encourage our leaders. And next one, I wrote this, I thought this is a bit of a church warden thing, but here we go. Um, Gideon tried to change things. He came up with innovations and extras. Okay, he introduced a new ephod, he introduced a new center of worship. It might have sent, he might have seen this as a reasonable thing to do, but is it reasonable for us to change things? When God has provided things, should we seek to alter them or add extras? We should think carefully about what we introduce that might be new. Think carefully. Gideon didn't. It led him and others astray. So we should pray, encourage, be careful. And then we shouldn't write off the Lord's work or his workers. You may be able to think of people you know or have known who has who've worked in, in the church, they've been used mightily by the Lord, and then you say, well, unfortunately, they don't seem to be going on with the Lord now. I can think of some, you may be able to think of some. Does that invalidate the work they did? It's easy for us to say, well, Gideon went off the rails, therefore everything he did was in some way imperfect, and therefore we, don't, we shouldn't worry too much about him. He's, he's gone off the rails, it, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't dismiss the things that he did. It is hard to end well, but Gideon ends up in the book of Hebrews, which suggests that the Lord's work was not invalidated by his later behavior. The Lord's work stands. He, can, he achieved the savior deliverer role that he was given. God uses imperfect people to achieve his ends, his purposes. In this case, to deliver Israel from its enemies. He, however, needed to use a perfect person to achieve his perfect salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. But God uses us in our imperfection. That's something I think we should grab on to. So, pray for leaders, encourage them appropriately, be careful about introducing change, and don't judge. Only God can judge. Don't write people off. Now, this is not a trilogy on Gideon. Unfortunately, it's a quartet. There's another sermon to come. What happens after Gideon dies that is a consequence of his time, you're going to have to find out next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a hard passage, um, so full of challenge to us. Help us, Lord, to go away and take positives from this about how we should live in ways that glorify you, that support our leaders, that support the work of your kingdom and the people in the church. Help us, Lord, to um, encourage and to pray continuously and to be cautious and seek your will in changes that we make and to know that you are the perfect judge and we should not judge others and uh, you use imperfect people. We thank you for using us in so many ways and we pray that we would be faithful to you in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen.